I was in absolute awe as I had never seen anyone come to the aid of another in a desperate circumstance in order to save them from trouble. I was six years old and my family was in Taiwan, I believe, on vacation, probably en route to Malaysia where my parents were from. And as we were walking on the street, a man collapsed right in front of us and started seizing, right? So I was six years old. I have no idea what's going on. It's a guy on the ground who's shaking violently. But in a flash, my dad intervened. He got on the ground right next to the man, cradles his head, and even stuck some object in his mouth so he wouldn't bite himself. And he stayed there with him all the way until his seizure ended. It was amazing to see my dad step in to save the day. And he became bigger in my own eyes, in my own heart. And I felt such confidence with my dad, in my dad, to save. Well, from the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, we see God step in to deliver. Not just in an earthly way, but ultimately in the greatest way, that is to step in and to del deliver his people from their sin, to promise that he would, in fact, do so. And as we walk through the book of Isaiah, God is supposed to become bigger in our eyes, bigger in our hearts, as we take confidence in him alone to save. Today we have our second sermon in a three-part series through the book of Isaiah, which was written by Isaiah the prophet, and he ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah around 750 to 700 B.C. In the first 37 chapters, we saw God come to the aid of the people in darkness, and he promises to send a Messiah, the chosen one, to reign as king, a king to rule and a king to reign because God's people couldn't rule and reign for themselves or over themselves, and they had turned away from God. In our section today, chapters 38 to 55, you'll see, our you'll see the breakdown there that I've provided in your bulletin. There's a little insert that gives a brief outline of Isaiah. By the way, if you don't have a bulletin, I encourage you to go ahead and get one now. It's not going to bother me. You're not going to bother the person next to you. Just go ahead and grab a bulletin uh, from the ushers, and there you'll see the outline. But in 38 to 55, God gives us another picture of who this Messiah King would be. Not only is he the Messiah who rules and reigns, he is also the Messiah who suffers and serves the Messiah who suffers and serves. And then when we finish the book next month in our third and final sermon, we see that the coming Messiah is the one who is the conqueror as well. So you have king, you have today in our section the, the one who suffers and serves, and then next time we see that he is the conqueror. And again, I pray that as we go through the book of Isaiah here at the 30,000 foot view, sort of big picture overview, I hope that God becomes bigger in your eyes and in your heart and you would take comfort in God who saves. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. And we're going to read here 12 verses together. And this is probably the most well-known passage in the book of Isaiah. It's a prophecy of the suffering servant. So let's stand today and let's go ahead and read 52. And I'll go from 52.13 till the end of the chapter. 
52.13. Oh, sorry, not to the end of the chapter. We'll just stop at verse 6. So 52.13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the child children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of them. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which, has, that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Please be seated. The promise of deliverance brings light into darkness. Again, the people were in darkness because they had abandoned their God, they had abandoned their creator, their sustainer. So instead of depending on God, they turned to the nations around them in fear. It was not there was no earthly reason to fear. There was earthly reason to fear. I mean, God's people, his Old Testament people, had already broken up. Civil war had already taken place, and God's Old Testament people were fighting against each other. You had the northern kingdom, which retained the name Israel, and then you had the southern kingdom, which is referred to by Judah. So not only were they infighting, but around them, they were just surrounded by these superpowers. You had, if you're looking at a map, looking at me and I'm the map, you had Assyria to the north, the kingdom that reigned everywhere at the time. But then to the east over here, you had rising Babylon growing in power. And then to the south, of course, you have the historic Egypt. And then, of course, to the west, if you're looking at the map again, you just have the sea. So they're just surrounded by these superpowers. And they're just little, tiny little Israel, God's people, Judah, God's people. Feeling so much insecurity and fear, they rejected God. Instead of trusting in him to deliver their king, the sovereign God, instead of trusting in him, they turned to the nations and their gods and they plunged themselves into darkness. But here's the good news. Main point for today. God is unrelenting in his zeal to save sinners. God is unrelenting in his zeal to save sinners. And we see this in three different ways. The first we see is in his faithfulness. The second in his power, and then the third in his humility. So let's look first that we see his unrelenting zeal to save sinners first in his faithfulness. And really, this is his faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. His faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. You guys, we sing this 
him regularly. And the lyrics say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Just as we know, so they knew too. And a great wonderful example actually that kicks off this whole entire section is the illustration of unfaithfulness by man, but God's faithfulness, right? So if you're looking for an illustration, here is the historic illustration, okay? And this takes place in King Hezekiah. To back up, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, his father had turned away from God big time. Though his son Hezekiah was much better than he was, Hezekiah nevertheless wandered away from God as well. In chapters 1 to 37, it ends on this climactic demonstration of God's sovereign power. That was the illustration of God's sovereignty against the nations who worshipped impotent idols. And God delivers King Hezekiah and Jerusalem from the Assyrian army, right? So big bad Assyria comes knocking at Jerusalem's door. Their, sol their, their soldiers are taunting the people of God, deriding God's name and his character, and they boast that nothing can stand in their way. And though King Hezekiah was shaking in fear, the Lord was nevertheless on his side. Just as God has promised, God had struck down the Assyrian army, and soon after, Assyria's king. That's in 36, uh, sorry, 37 verse 36 if you want to look at it. And all of this God did in the face of Hezekiah's faithlessness. Despite man's unfaithfulness, God is faithful to carry out his plan. And that should be really encouraging to us as Christians who frankly sin. So if chapters 36 and 37, of course it's important to set the background here. That's why we're talking about the historic accuracy here. In 36 and 37, it speaks about uh, God's defeat of the Assyrians, right? Well, in 38 and 39, it's like we're zooming in and then seeing how even though man is faithless, God is still faithful. And the way that Isaiah does it is he helps us examine Hezekiah's waffling faith here. What happens in 38 you want to glance there. Hezekiah gets sick he, and then almost dies. And this is before the Assyrians are struck down by God, okay? So remember, God's working out his plan. In 37, he strikes down the Assyrians. And then 38 and 39, God says, backs up the situation so that we would examine this faithless heart. Hezekiah prays after he gets sick that God would extend his life. God hears him by his grace. He gives him 15 more years of life. And to prove that his promise would stand, this miraculous promise, God gives him a sign. And the shadow cast on a staircase that led probably up to the king's upper room, the shadow cast by the sun, would move back 10 steps. Probably a sundial. If the sun strikes the tower, tower casts the shadow on the stairs. God says, look, to prove to you that I will do this, I'm going to back up that shadow by 10 steps. We don't exactly know how God did it, but he did it. He is creator after all. And Hezekiah is encouraged. You look at 38.17. Look at 38.17. He goes from despair to hope. That's good. He says, but in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. The Lord will save me. That's confidence. That's, that's encouraging. Hezekiah recognizes God's sovereignty. He recognizes that God alone saves. He seems to be full of faith there. But in 39, he falters. 
He goes from faithfulness to faithlessness. And even though God had already promised to protect him and Jerusalem, even though God had granted him by a miracle extra life and brought him from sickness to health, he still abandons God and partners up with Babylon. This is before Assyria came to destroy, right? So the Assyrian kingdom was a dominating force at the time, as I mentioned. And then in the eastern part of the empire, you had Babylon and rebellion was afoot against Assyria. A guy named Merodach Baladan rebelled against Assyria's king. And then in, in order to gain momentum in terms of this rebellion, let's just call him MB, MB approaches Judah and says, hey, you know, basically you're on the western side of the kingdom. Well, how about we both rebel against Assyria? And Judah gives in. Hezekiah gives in. Really, probably thinking that if I partner up with Babylon, then I'll stand a chance against Assyria. But God had already promised to deliver Jerusalem and Hezekiah from Assyria. So that's where you get confused. You think, wow, this guy's not full of faith. He's actually in that particular moment, at least, faithless, in fear. You see what happens there in 39.2? Uh, you see MB, he courts Hezekiah with letters and a present. You know, again, we would hope that with, a pro with, with God's promise to protect him and Jerusalem, with God bringing him back to miraculous health, with God giving him 15 extra years of life, with God giving them a sign of backing up the stairs, causing the sun somehow to, to turn back a little bit, that Hezekiah would be strong in the face of Assyria. And he would say, look, Babylon, look, I know that you're, you're, you're courting me so we can rebel, but God has already promised to deliver me and to protect me all for his great glory. But what does 39.2 say? Look there. Hezekiah welcomed them gladly and showed them his treasure house. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all the realm that Hezekiah did not show them. It's the exact same sin that his father Ahaz had committed with the Assyrians, 2 Kings 19, 16. And it's, you're meant to think that he's prostituting himself and Judah to Babylon. He's so loose, let's call it. He, he lets the pagans see and explore the riches of the kingdom all given to them by God, and he gives himself away to Babylon. And here Hezekiah is just a representative of the people. Like Hezekiah, so the people. All of God's people did not trust in God as a whole. And Isaiah rebukes the prophet, Hezekiah, Isaiah, the prophet rebukes Hezekiah and he brings God, God's judgment there in verse five. Look there. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, it's all the stuff that he already showed Babylon, right? Shall be carried away to Babylon. Material goods, your own sons, shall be taken away to be their captives. It's a prophecy of the Babylonian exile that would happen around 100 years later, actually, around 600 B.C. And here, simply in this judgment, God's just fast-forwarding the outcome. If you remember that from last time, he's just fast-forwarding the outcome, and God gives them over to their longings and to their worldly hopes, and the very thing they hope in crushes them. You would think that this judgment would be bad, right? 
the king, supposed to lead, protect God's people, supposed to represent God to his people and represent the people to God. But he doesn't, but it's not bad to him. Look at verse eight. It's the opposite. His response is appalling. In verse eight, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. This is mind boggling here. Exile for my descendants is good. All that the Lord has given to us that is holy unto his name is going to be carried off to Babylon. That is good. And he's thinking, oh, because me and my days. It's me and my days. Forget my son's days. Forget my descendants' days. For me, there is this apparent peace. We want to think that Hezekiah is such a dummy, frankly. At least I do. But we too, friends, are like him. So easily forsaking long-term spiritual good for short-term earthly benefit. One moment we might say, I love this Jesus. I love his blessings. For your promises of life eternal and joy and peace in him, we say, Jesus, take the wheel. But in moments of fear, thinking that God does not bring hope or the salvation we think we need, or deliverance according to our timing, according to our wisdom, then we go groveling to the world. Give me wisdom, we say to the world. Take my money. Give me your advice. Everything I have is yours if you would deliver me. So you can imagine, right, the envoys of the world approaching us with gifts, letters of praise, or whatever it is, letters of deliverance. The envoys of the world, the envoys of comfort, the envoys of security, the envoys of pleasure, of strength. And so we reject the Lord and we turn to these functional idols. Apparently, we say God's peace and security in Christ and his blood, God's salvation, his wisdom, his knowledge, his timing, his shepherding is not so suitable for me in this time. That's faithlessness. But friends, what is emblazoned here in these chapters is that though we turn away from God in our sin, he is nevertheless zealous to save. Zeal, we def- as we're going to define it here right now, great energy or determination or enthusiasm in pursuit of his cause, his objective. In this case, God's objective is the salvation of sinners. Gathering a people to himself who go on and display his glory. God is zealous to save in his faithfulness, right? Faithfulness. Despite Hezekiah and the people's faithfulness, look how God intervenes in the very next verse, right? You saw all of that sin. He's going to give everything away to Babylon, or he lets them see, and then, and then Isaiah judges him. And then what does God do in 40 verse 1? Comfort. He brings a word of comfort. Right after Hezekiah says, this is good. God, God knows it's not good. But here is some comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. This is jarring. The people sin, but God, right there, steps in to give words of comfort. Though Babylon would come and capture them, their exile would end. That's what it means there when it says your warfare has ended. And then their sins would be forgiven. That's what it means there when he says, and your iniquity pardoned. Though we sin, in God's faithfulness, he is right there 
to hold out grace. That is so encouraging. I mean, for us, right? For us all who sin against God, whether we sin big time or whether we sin small, think about our own experience, right? When we are sinned against, when we are sinned against, some of us here need to be convinced to love our loved ones. Because we get angry, we get pouty, and then we demand that other people show a little bit more. Just go and do a little bit more, and then I'll forgive you. We need the other party to do something to make things right, and then we forgive. But praise God, God is not like us. According to His great love and steadfast mercy that goes back through generations in terms of His promises, praise God, His love is not as flimsy. It's not as flimsy as ours is, certainly. It's not flimsy at all. His loving character is not sporadic. But instead, the opposite, his zeal to save, his zeal to gather for himself a people for his own possession, it never wanes. It's a hundred percent like an ocean flowing in one direction, a hundred percent determination and faithfulness to save sinners. We sin, and he's still right there, arms wide open, the Bible says. We see this over and over again in our section. Look at 41. Go ahead and turn to chapter 41, verses 21 to 29. This is a section where God is offering consolation to the nations. So, so again, if you turn to your outline, you'll kind of see where we are. It's very logical in terms of the way that Isaiah lays it out there. This is in a section where God is offering consolation, though they sin. In verses 24 to 29, talk about the faithlessness of the people in worshiping idols the foolishness of idols themselves. And then on top of that, the foolishness of idol worshipers. Verse 24, he says, Behold, you idols are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, an abomination who chooses you. Remember, he's just talking about the sin of the people. They turn to the nations and their idols. So he's rebuking the idols. And so clearly he says, that's sin. And then in the very next verse, God intervenes with grace. 42.1, Behold my servant, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or made it heard on the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You see that those who are already broken, he does not break fully. Instead, he gives life. We sin, enter God's faithfulness. We see the pattern again. Look at 42, 18 to 25. This is a section where God is speaking about redemption. He's laying out his plan of redemption. And you see there the sin of the people. Verse 18, they're described as deaf and blind. Verse 20, they don't pay attention to God. Verse 22, they are desolate and in exile. They are not paying attention to God, their creator. They've abandoned him. They experience judgment for their sin God's faithfulness. 43.1. But now, thus says the Lord, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. The fact that God is so faithful despite our turning is so comforting. Because if redemption and salvation were dependent upon ourselves, we would be done for. 
Thank God these verses don't say, once you are good enough, once you've done more, once you heal yourself, then I will redeem you. God simply says to us in our sins, fear not. I have redeemed you. So salvation, of course, according to the Bible, is all of God's grace and mercy, not according to our works. So if you can't get over yourself for what you have done, if you feel so miserable in guilt, in shame over what you have done, if what keeps you up at night is just realizing how sinful you are, your own sin surprises you, Isaiah says, look to God. Look to the faithfulness of God. Friends, isn't it so encouraging that you will never catch him sleeping in his attentiveness to you? You will never find him inattentive to his people. You will never find him reticent to forgive. He never needs convincing in terms of his loving pursuit of you. Instead, he is 100% zealous all the time to save and forgive his people. And so just as he bursts into darkness with hope here in our passage, so he bursts into your darkness, bringing hope. Friends, you realize that he does this here? He does that here when the word is preached, when his gospel truths are preached, when our, his gospel truths are sung, when his gospel truths are read, when they are prayed about. And then when we go on and have fellowship and go on and talk more about it and exercise care, the care of Christ for one another, he bursts into your darkness here. Even what goes on here is evidence of God's faithfulness to bring light into darkness. How encouraging is it? Let's say from Romans chap I mean Revelation chapter 4. All of those truths that are going to take place, that heavenly worship at the end. Friends, if you are a Christian, have repented of your sin and believed, despite your sin, despite your turning, your faithfulness at times, he's going to make sure you get there. How is it that he does that? Because he is faithful. Praise God for that. God is faithful even in our faithlessness. That's evidence of his zeal to save. Next point number two. Point number two, we see God's zeal to save in his power. We see God's zeal to save in his power. For a moment here, right, we're kind of stacking on top of faithfulness. We're stacking on top of that power. But imagine zeal. Let's say even you're faithful in zeal. Imagine you are zealous but without power. What a funny scene that would be. I mean, it's, it's in the realm of, this is how I thought about it, it's in the realm of something that is cute. It's something that's nice. You're full of good intentions, but you really can't do anything. I like, uh, I confess, I like animal videos. And I'll get caught sometimes watching, actually I was showing Melanie one at around 11.30 at night about a capybara. I like animal videos, so if I see one on Instagram, you know, I'll stop and watch. Just imagine thinking about zeal without power, right? Imagine some cute little puppy running as fast as it can to jump onto a couch. And of course, since it's still trying to get its legs underneath him, legs underneath it working, it runs straight into the couch. 
And we say, oh, how cute. Zeal without power. It's cute. It's nice. But friends, in Scripture, God is, has 100% zeal with 100% power. And so he is a force to be reckoned with. A king that is to be submitted to. The Lord in whom we trust. So God's 100% zeal is always fueled by 100% sovereign power. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. In this section, again, God is consoling his people in himself because there's no one else but him. No one else compares no thing, especially the nation's idols, compared to God the sovereign one. This is why the evangelist in chapter 40, verse 9 says, right, redirecting the people from sin in 39 to God, the answer. 40, verse 9, behold your God. Verse 12, what does it say? It says there, the, the point here is that he is the one who is sovereign over all creation. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? No one. 13 and 14, you have all of these more rhetorical questions, right? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? That's wisdom. Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is no one, no one, no one, no one. God alone is God. There is no God but God. He's the only show in town. Despite what Assyria says, despite what Babylon says, despite what the nations and their God hold out, the reality is, is they are imposters, impotent, zero power. You look over at 40, verse 18 to 20. Just go ahead and skim there. The idols, they can't do anything. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compares with them? The idols can't do anything. And in fact, they are dependent upon man. In another instance, turn over to 44.12. And the reason why we're turning over, turning around is because Isaiah would address, he'll address idolatry, turn to something else. Talk about how God is the only God. Then he'll return to idolatry and then turn back to God is the only God. So we see here in 44 verse 12, God addresses the foolishness of idol makers and idol worshipers. He says idol worshipers, like how strong can your idols be when you do everything? You take the cutting tool. You take the hammers. You trace out a pattern for it. You design its shape. You make it into a figure of man. You give it the beauty of man. You set, up, set it up in the house of man. And elsewhere in Isaiah says, look, you idol makers even have to bolt it in because, you know, if you bump it with your hip, the thing's going to fall over. How strong is that? He continues, you planted the tree and the rain nourished it. You choose the wood. The conclusion here is uh, idols have no power. It serves man's purposes as a mere tool. And you look there at 44, verse 15, 44, 15. Then it becomes fuel for man, right? Serves the purpose of man. How grand could it be? He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread with it. But the other half, he makes a god and worships it? He makes it an idol and falls down before it, crying out, deliver me, you are my God. You see what he's saying? He's saying here that, look, with one half, you do whatever you want with it. It is subservient to you. But then you turn to the other half, 
the other half a block of wood, and you cry out to, and say, save me, save me, and you say you are subservient to it. It makes no sense. God says this is foolishness. But then again, redirecting the people's hearts, look at what God says in 44.6. 44.6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Verse 8, there is, is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And, here, and, and then here, we can turn to God's words of hope in 44.21. Look there. Here's the bursting in again. We see God's faithfulness. You also see God's power. 44, 21, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out or swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I wonder what you have become, what you're tempted to become subservient to. What have you determined has power to deliver? Because whatever, however you answer that question, that is the thing that you bow down to. And it serves us well, actually, to put some of our earthly idols or gods to the test to see just how impotent they are. I mean, imagine if you bowed down to the idol of comfort, where every decision made, like go on and picture this in your mind, where every decision made, every dollar spent, Every single hour used went to maximizing your own personal comfort. I wonder what those who depend on you would say about you as a slave to comfort. Does it have power to uplift, power to love, power to secure? You probably don't even need to think about it. You can probably look to, sadly, a friend, family member, perhaps struggling to maintain a steady job, struggling to maintain responsibilities because they have given themselves to their own ideas of comfort. Or imagine bowing down to the idol of control and power where every word spoken, every physical gesture was executed in such a way to get what you want at the expense of others. Does that have power to be life-giving or is that life taking? I mean, maybe you know what it's like to be led by someone like this who has no love for those they lead or who wants to rule in sin over those they lead. What about, what about bowing down to pleasure? You may know what it's like to be left feeling empty and used, discarded by earthly pleasure. We might not have to look far to find broken marriages, someone who has been cheated on, people whose lives have been gutted by the pursuit of earthly carnal pleasure. Where's their power in that? Is there power to satisfy if, if, as you are left craving more? This is insufficient. This is insufficient. These things that we set up and bow down to, at the end of the day, they are insufficient. 
And so we are disappointed. So are you disappointed in relationships, in money, in popularity, in belonging, in family, in peace and security here on this earth? Friends, I encourage you to see your disappointment in those things as like a God-given alarm alerting you to the reality that those things are not worthy of your worship. Remember the bitter taste of your disappointment that you may even have in your mouth right now. Remember the emptiness in being let down or how, or how you, as you have pursued these things, have let down others in this great domino effect of sin and sin's effects. And remember that they are not worthy of our worship. Our disappointments in those things are like God-given beacons that are supposed to direct our minds and our hearts' affections to God, the only God, the only one worthy of our worship, who alone is able to save. God alone is all there is. In 43 verse 11, 43 verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. God alone has power to deliver, and nothing should ever take His place because nothing can ever take His place. You know, it is said that we often sin by taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. That's not always the way we sin, but that's some, oftentimes the way we sin. We take a good thing, like a blessing of God, and we turn it into an ultimate thing, like those things we mentioned before, pleasure, comfort, even authority. We often take these things and we assign to them God's status, and so therefore we become idolaters. And let's be really clear. Let's be open. Let's be honest. If you are a member here at Evergreen Baptist Church, or if you are visiting and you know yourself to be a Christian who have repented of your sins and believe, you are, we are all former idolaters, saved by the grace of God. So if you're exploring Christianity and you want to know more, well, who is this Jesus? Why is it so worth it to follow him? Why should I repent of my sins and believe on him? Why is he so great? Why is he even the Savior? Why is he even the Lord? Why is he the king who rules? And why do you trust him, Christian? Friends, if you want to know more about this Jesus, come talk to us. Talk to the friend who brought you. And you will see, ask them, what is it that you were enslaved to previously? And may even be enslaved, uh, maybe struggling to refuse now in terms of temptations. What calls at you? What are the envoys of the world that you struggle to resist and why is God better? You'll come to know and see a little bit more clearly how God alone is our Savior. Of course, don't expect perfection. We still struggle to think the same ways we used to think before we were Christians, but friends, we definitely know struggle. But thank God we also know what it looks like to trust in Jesus Christ who saves us from our sin. You will find all sorts of former idolaters, whether we have bowed down to physical idols, whether we bow down to earthly idols. If you want to talk to somebody, let me know, and I'll try and find a former idolater for you to talk to, one who has turned to believe on Jesus Christ. Each of our lives testify to the fact that God alone is powerful to save. He alone has power to save and deliver and to deliver and to change. Point number three, point number three, we see God's zeal in faithfulness, point number one, in power, point number two, and lastly, point number three, in God's humility, really in God's loving humility. 
Like, earlier we saw you know, that God judges him, but then he also is right there, faithful. He bursts into our darkness with a promise of grace. We saw that. Compared to our faithlessness, this is truly shocking. But what is more shocking, all the more, is the way in which God would move to forgive his people's sins, right? He spoke about pardon. We looked at that earlier. He spoke about how he's going to wipe away our sins like a cloud, like a mist, as if it's nothing. How is it that he does this? Let me explain a little bit of the structure here in 45 to 55. Now, we're going to dip into background here. God, through Isaiah, identifies two redeemers that he would use to accomplish his plans. The first redeemer is Cyrus, king of Persia, okay? We're just talking about historical background here. From 44 to 48, God says that he would use Cyrus to send the people out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem, right? Out of exile, whereas people would go on to rebuild the temple. Cyrus, amazingly, is even named in this prophecy. And he's not even going to come onto the scene until 100 years later. Of course, God is God. He's speaking the end from the beginning. Though Cyrus would set them free from captivity, the people, of course, would still be in spiritual captivity. Their fundamental problem was their rejection of God, and so what they needed was spiritual salvation. And so while God is preparing Cyrus to send them back, so he was preparing another Redeemer, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. There are four poems about this servant in our chapters today. If you pull out your handout, you can see it right there in that box. These are the servant songs, as they're typically called, and they paint a wonderful picture of how God would, in fact, send this special one to rule over his people where they could not and to deliver them, to do for the people what they could not do themselves. The first song has to do how the servant brings justice. His law goes to the ends of the earth. The second servant song talks about how God's going to be glorified in him and bring his people back even amongst the nations third one there the servant is faithful living in dependence and perfect faith in god and the fourth one is what we read earlier it's what we focus the rest of our uh, sermon on god had earlier promised atonement and we see here that atonement would come through the servant here we have such a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ who suffers and dies for the sins of his people. So go ahead and turn to 52, Isaiah 52. We, look at, we start there at 13. The servant is identified again. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And then in 53.3, 53.3, all of a sudden we get to his misfortune course it hasn't been revealed yet why he would experience so much misfortune the question is why is God's servant acquainted with grief was he born with a disease is he born malformed the reason there is in verse 4 but it's because he takes upon himself our ailments and problems he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Why is he stricken, smitten, and afflicted? Look there in verse 5. It's because he takes up the punishment that was for us as our substitute. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him 
was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Do you see God's zealous, faithful, powerful, loving, humble love for you, Christian? How determined and zealous is God to save? Though you turn away, God is faithful to his own promises to save a people for himself. And how is it that he saves? He saves through himself. He sees our need. He knows we are unable to save ourselves. And God is right there actively planning, carrying out his plan in all of his faithfulness, in all of his power, in all of his loving humility to save us from our sin. In an amazing display of those character qualities that we looked at, right? God is actively zealous to save sinners. So if, you, friends, if you want to see, if you're not really sure because you're struggling maybe with self-condemnation in an ungodly way that doesn't lead to repentance, instead you just judge yourself, thinking that salvation is somehow by works, the answer to that, if you want to see God's affirmation of love, you look to the incarnation of Christ, his, his life here on earth, perfect, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And there you see Yahweh himself, the Lord, come to save sinners in Christ, his eternal son. Did you look there? Did you notice there in 52.13? Did you look how the servant is described? Look there, look there. We want to be like the Bereans, the Berean church. They tested everything that was said according to the word of God. We want you to see it in the word of God yourself. It says, behold, my servant, this is Yahweh talking about, Yahweh talking, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Those are words that we've seen before. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in Isaiah's vision before the throne, who does he see? He says, I see the Lord high and lifted up. Who is it that accomplishes salvation, the salvation of his people? God, the eternal Son, come in the flesh to suffer and die on the cross for the sins of everyone who would ever repent of their sins and believe. If you want to see zeal in salvation, you look to Christ. He goes the distance on this amazing rescue mission initiated by him, he leaves, the eternal Son of God leaves his divine throne where he is worthy of all glory and power and honor and praise to his name. He goes across the universe and he takes upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh. He lives the righteous life that we could never live and he pushes back in his earthly ministry. He's pushing back the forces of Satan and evil and he suffers at the hands of sinners. When he is reviled, he did not revile. And though he was perfectly righteous, he bore the sins and the wrath and judgment that we deserved in order that we would be made right with God, not of any of our doing, but simply because we look to Christ. We cast ourselves at Christ. Three days later, he gets up from the dead. And he now, friends, lives to intercede for us before the Father as our advocate. What loving humility Look at 40, 54, verse 10. 54, verse 10. Look at this humble love 
for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Again, if you're visiting with us and you are exploring this Christianity, you've heard of this Jesus from your friend, from the person who brought you, friends, know that you too can know this joy and comfort in Christ, God's steadfast love, if you repent of your sins and believe. And so in, ver in chapters 54 and 55, it's basically all praise. It's basically all just response that flows out of the work of the suffering servant and those who cast themselves at his feet. 55 verse one, you see this wonderful glorious invitation that goes to the ends of the earth. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Because it's all by grace. And then you look at six and seven. We close with these verses. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Friends, if you want to know forgiveness of your sins, reconciliation with God, adoption into his family where you know him as father, repent of your sins and believe and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are who you say you are. And in light of who we are, we cast ourselves at your feet. How awesome is it, God, that you are always poised, eager, faithful, constant to hold out grace to us who turn. God, you know our weakness. And we thank you, God, that you meet it in your sovereign power. We see this so clearly in Christ, the final sacrifice, the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness, for your power, and for your loving humility that where you see that we have created a problem, you are our solution. So God, when we might be tempted to depend on ourselves, to worship ourselves as if we have all power or all knowledge or all wisdom, thinking that we can deliver ourselves or convict us of our sin, help us turn back to you as the passage we just read says, and may we come, banking on the fact that you are steadfast in your love. These things we pray for your great namesake and for our good, you promise us. In your name we pray, amen.